Hello and welcome to this episode of Stories of Hope. I'm Vedika and today we have with us author and multi-award-winning eating disorder campaigner Hope Virgo. Hope is a spokesperson as well as an author who has written about her journey with her eating disorder. She has also been conducting several talks for young people and employers to help them deal and gain a better understanding of the rising tide of mental health issues. In 2018, she launched a campaign called Dump the Scales, which garnered 116,000 signatures and was also delivered to 10 Downing Street. Her campaign focused on how the NHS should provide support to people with their eating disorders, irrespective of their BMI. Before we begin to hear more from Hope about her journey, her experiences and her learnings, I'd like to put out a trigger warning for our audiences. If at any point during this conversation, should you find yourself feeling triggered or distressed, we urge you to please take a step back and look after yourself. If you need any additional resources, you can also find them on our website. Now, without taking much time, I'm going to hand over to Hope. Hope, welcome to this episode and thank you so much for joining us. No, thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm really looking forward, you know, to you sharing your insights and your stories so that, you know, that can be an inspiration to many more people who might be going through something similar and just for them to feel a little less alone. No, thanks so much for having me. No, we really appreciate that. And on that note, like, you know, Hope, do you want to tell us a little bit about, you know, what that journey has looked like for you in terms of, you know, with your mental health and with your eating disorder? Yeah, so I developed anorexia when I was about 12, 13 years old. Um, for me, the eating disorder served a purpose. Um, it gave me a value and kind of a bit of security whilst numbing a lot of the emotional things that I didn't really want to feel as well. Um, kind of, yeah, eventually after four years of living with the eating disorder, um, my school got in touch with my mum. I then went to my doctor and then I was referred to the Children's Adolescent Mental Health Services. Um, was an outpatient for about six months um, at that point uh, and then eventually was admitted to treatment where I spent a year kind of in recovery so learning about food learning about exercise and the really big thing was learning to talk about things I think so often with eating disorders we think that they're about food they're about body image they're about people wanting to look a certain way and so for me having a space to unpack what the eating disorder was really about and the purpose it was serving for me in that moment was what I needed to kind of start progressing into my own recovery. Um, and then ever since then, I've been in an ongoing state of recovery. So I believe that people can fully recover from an eating disorder. I think for me, I've probably got a tiny bit of a way to go to get to that point. Um, but a big thing for me is about kind of proactively pushing and striving for that full recovery on a day-to-day -day basis. Right. So, you know, you mentioned that, you know, initially, um, you know, when you got help for your eating disorder and your like, sort of realization along the way on what recovery can look like. So what would you say, you know, were some sort of highs and lows through your journey? Um, I guess I had to realize that whilst the eating disorder made me feel invincible, it wasn't. And I had to think about all of the other positives and the other purposes of recovery. So for me, a huge, a huge way of helping me get to that point, I guess, was was those high moments where 
I'd kind of go out with my friends and I'd have those moments where I felt completely free of the eating disorder and moments when I felt able to really express what was going on. But I think with eating disorders, quite often you go to these places where you kind of plateau, you feel a little bit stuck, the kind of fear paralyzes you in some respects. And so in those moments, you have to find a way to keep pushing forward and keep challenging that thinking and that behavior as well. Um, but it's been, it's been a long journey. Um, I came out of hospital 12, 13 years ago. Um, and whilst I don't have to battle it every day, I do still have days when things feel slightly harder, where things feel a bit more challenging. Um, and so I think in those moments, they're definitely the low moments, but I always know that actually for me, when I hit a low moment, I know exactly what to do to get to like, to get through it and to then get to the next moment. Right. So, you know, in terms of like even um, recovery and all the work that you've been doing, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, like how this whole journey has influenced you? Yeah, so I um, I decided about five years ago um, to start kind of campaigning on all of this stuff. Um, so I think for me, my journey has massively influenced what I do now. So I spend my kind of life campaigning and speaking about mental health and body image and self-worth and eating disorders and things like that. And I guess for me, it's turning something that's been really, really awful into a real positive and realizing that I was so frustrated with the system. I was so frustrated with the way that things were being done um, that I had to do something about it. Um, I think it also has given me an understanding about people that maybe I wouldn't have had before. Um, and I guess a real passion to try and help others as well. Right. You know, in terms of like you mentioned the system, right, and one of the things has been like the misconception around BMI, especially when it comes to getting people help with regards to their eating disorder. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, that and like, especially about your whole campaigning around dump this game? Yeah, so quite often when we think of eating disorders, we automatically think of like a kind of white teenage emaciated girl. But we know kind of proportionally that actually only 6% of people with an eating disorder are ever underweight. But yet the way eating disorder services are set up to tackle eating disorders, it's, it's quite often fixated on what a person weighs and whether they then have an eating disorder based on that. Um, and so I've kind of, yeah, been campaigning on this for the last couple of years, trying to make sure that people can access treatment and support regardless of what their BMI is. But actually going kind of further than that now and looking at kind of proper funding, looking at whether we can have this whole kind of reformation of services, making sure that the right support is out there. We know statistically that eating disorders have the highest mortality rate out of any psychiatric illness, that they're still an illness that is massively misunderstood across the board. And the fact that it's 2021 and we're still dealing with high numbers of people dying, high numbers of people not accessing treatment is just ridiculous. Um, so the campaigning and kind of has moved from just being about BMI, but looking, like I said, kind of funding, looking at education, um, and then also kind of making sure that there is the right treatment um, out there for everyone, even if you can't afford it. I think, again, with eating disorder treatment, there is such an kind of an, I guess, like an inequality around support, like it's based so much on what you look like, um, on where you live. It's based on the kind of conversation that maybe you'll have with your GP. Um, and a lot of the time people end up having to try and go private and a lot of people can't even afford that. So again, making sure that actually there is that accessible treatment for every single person. You know, one thing again that you know you brought about was a huge part of it 
like about like inequality of access and so the problem is that the system itself is happening right especially when you look at an eating disorder so do you think somewhere you know like the stigma around eating disorders or the misinformation around eating disorders like how do you think that sort of plays into the you know the way the system is built yeah i, I think it massively does and i think that again it's it it comes back to the lack of education around it and people not really having a proper understanding of eating disorders and the types of eating disorders there are out there. Um, yeah, and I think as well, like we're set up to deal with people with anorexia perhaps and to get them to a space where they're maybe functioning at a high level in recovery, but the system isn't necessarily set up to deal with someone who's got bulimia or binge eating disorder, for example. Um, and I think on top of that, we live in a society where we are very judgmental about people's bodies. We are very judgmental about um, what people look like. And we glamorize kind of this, this like idol of being kind of thin on being a certain shape. And again, I think it's those misconceptions that add to the stigma around eating disorders. And I do also think, I guess, alongside all of that is people don't still fully understand eating disorders. We get fixated on them being about food and body image, and they're just not about that at all. They're a projection of fears and feelings onto those as the outlet. Um, and the more we just focus on the food, the means that actually it's harder for people to make that recovery because they still don't really fully understand why they've got the eating disorder in the first place. Right. So what would you say have been sort of, you know, your really big learnings along this journey? Um, yeah, so I think for me, big learnings are I, I definitely realised that there was more to life than the eating disorder. I think for so long it had become my whole entire identity. Um, I think, again, it had made me feel like I was good enough, that it gave me a lot of that self-worth that I needed. Um, it helped to numb a lot of emotions. And I think a big learning for me was getting my identity from elsewhere and giving myself space to feel things um, that maybe I'd never felt before um, as well. So, yeah, I guess, yeah. And I think as well, like, I guess for me, it has a huge learning curve has been about being able to express myself in, in the right way when I'm doing things. And I think so often communication can be really, really challenging. And we often don't put our needs kind of ahead of others because we're worried about what people will think, we're worried about, we're just, we just worry. Um, and so I think for me, like a big thing along the way has actually been setting those boundaries and showing myself that kindness. But I have like spent a very long time working on my recovery. Um, and I'd say that I know my brain extremely well. Now I know what triggers it. I know what my coping mechanisms are. I know what to do in those moments. Um, and uh, what people see or hear when I speak is that kind of product of someone who has been working on themselves for a very long time. And I think as individuals, we have to take responsibility to do that, but we also need to give ourselves space and show ourselves compassion along that entire journey. You know, you've been someone who's been very active on social media, not just talking about the high points in recovery, but also, you know, like your low points as well. And you have shared stories when, you know, people have reached out to you or in terms of your campaign. So, but the thing with social media is that it can go both sides, right? Especially we're seeing a lot of research coming out about how platforms like Facebook and Instagram, like the impact it has on people in terms of like their body image in particular, especially younger women. So what would you say have been you know, like the sort of the learnings through using social media as a tool to, you know, spread awareness? Yes, yeah, so I think you're right. I think social media, it's such a, 
it's such an interesting one. And I think, again, there's still not enough research that's been done to actually see the long-term outcomes of it. I think the generations to come, it'll be fascinating to see actually what how they use Instagram and other social media platforms. Um, I think for me, it's it has a number of challenges to it. So I think generally people compare and judge and everything like that. And both comparisons and judgments are so wrong on every level um, that I always say to myself, actually, if I find myself comparing or judging, that's some that's a sign that something's not quite right. And actually, I need to maybe go back, like maybe stop using it for that short period of time. I think the thing, again, with social media and perhaps what I with what I do as well is you put yourself out there and you open yourself up to a whole load of criticism, a whole load of judgment. Um, and yes, you get some really, really nice feedback and some really nice comments. But actually, the like a lot of the time, you also get some really nasty stuff that you then again have to process, have to deal with, have to try and not take personally every time someone says something nasty. Um, and yeah, I think for me, it's all it's always about, again, having those boundaries in place around it. And I think that for everyone, like we need to know whether we're looking at social media for the right reasons. I think I know that when I've had a challenging day and I find myself scrolling on Instagram, even though I might be convincing myself I'm campaigning still, actually, I'm probably just making myself feel really awful. So having those boundaries around that. And then I think just being very, very aware that we all need to be kind of creating, creating our feeds in such a way that we're looking at content that helps. And it isn't just about posting kind of positive like memes all the time and just looking at that sort of stuff. But it's about looking at like a huge range of people, like looking at, yeah, like people who inspire us, people of all different ages. Um, and I think the more we do that and the more we add that variety, actually the better in some sense it is for all of us because it opens up our world to a whole load of other things that maybe we haven't really ever thought about or ever explored before um, as well but I think again for individuals it's it's that ownership it's about taking that responsibility a little bit as well within that. Right see one of the things again that you mentioned was you know like since when you put yourself out there or even like earlier when you talk to people that you know okay I'm experiencing an eating disorder or this is what I'm going through people have all kinds of things to say and sometimes they may not even know that you know the place that they're coming from that oh this can be very very unhelpful so keeping that in mind again do you want to tell us like you know some things which you know you've experienced which people might have said or you know that you know like these things are helpful and these things are not helpful so that even if someone wants to help someone you just know yeah, and it, I guess firstly, it, is, it can be quite individual to different people. Um, but I think things that have things that have really helped me is when people have understood that the eating disorder is not about food, it's not about body image, it's not about a diet or things like that. Um, and so that then they're able to kind of support me through that. I think it's always really important when you have people that you're supporting or you're being supported yourself, that you have people that you're accountable to, people that you can be really vulnerable with and share those kind of fears, those anxieties, but also people that will call you out on things as well. So maybe you're going through a really challenging time and maybe you're not, I don't know, pushing for your recovery as much anymore. And then having people to actually be like, do you know what? Like you're not pushing yourself hard enough. You're not opening that space up to challenge yourself. I think, I think if you've got people supporting you, they need to be giving you that hope, reminding you that the pain will eventually end. Like it's really difficult. It's really hard. They understand that it's not about food. It's just because you're eating or you look physically well, it doesn't mean that things are clicked. But actually, they're, again, giving you that space to hold on to those motivations. Something 
that I've been thinking a lot about recently is the fact that so often in recovery, you get so fixated on the pain that you are currently going through and it manifests itself in the way that you ruminate over things. It manifests yourself in your relationships. You maybe start to withdraw. You lose a lot of that self-worth within that. And for me, it's then in those moments, actually having those people around you that can remind you, this is the purpose for your recovery. This is why you need to keep doing what you're doing. And then it means that when you don't feel like you've got the energy to think of those reasons yourself, you've got someone else who is, again, willing to do that. Um, and then I think just like a really practical one is just being very mindful of the conversation that you might be having. So if you're someone who always talks about dieting or calories or food and things like that, like just being aware that if you've got friends with eating disorders, actually that conversation is really, really unhelpful. I know that I hate it when people talk about that sort of stuff. I mean, not because I find it triggering anymore, but just because I find it really, really irritating. Um, and I think like within that as well, like just maybe creating rules amongst friends where you don't talk about food as much, you don't talk about bodies as much. Um, and moving the conversation on from those things when you feel like it's maybe getting too much. Right. See, another thing is sometimes, like, you know, one of the things that people, um, you know, tend to feel about around recovery, especially in terms of eating disorders, is that they've derived a lot of comfort, unfortunately, from those coping mechanisms that they've used, which have sort of led to an eating disorder. So, you know, can you tell us a little bit about like, you know, what did recovery look like for you? And, you know, what can people really expect when we talk about recovery from an eating disorder? So recovery from an eating disorder is like this constant battle in your head. You, you know what you need to do to get well. You need to fuel yourself right. You need to have better coping mechanisms in place. But at the same time, you're often sitting with a lot of guilt, a lot of fear and a lot of uncertainty around what that will look like. Um, I think, again, recovery comes in different stages. So you might have that initial bit where it's really hard, you then might plateau a little bit, but then other things happen in life, whether it's meeting new people or even going clothes shopping or going to university or being kind of input into these different environments where again, they have their own challenges and things that you need to tackle as well. And every single time it's a chance to push for a like, next stepping point in your recovery, but it can be really difficult. And I think people underestimate actually that battle that people are going through that kind of, yeah, that battle to kind of get up and to just keep going. And I think again, because eating disorders aren't a choice that you have to choose to eat and choose to keep going. It adds to that stigma and it also adds to that narrative that people don't fully understand actually what might be going on for that person. Um, and I think as well, like sometimes, sometimes what people often forget and something that in my recovery has been quite important is to just try and be really vocal about things. I think when you go through a period of grieving or something like that, the easy option might be to restrict again and you know you'll feel better in the short term but you also know that's not going to help anything in the long term so in those moments where you're like I just need that instant relief or I just need those emotions to stop it's actually like do you know what actually feeling these things is okay I now need to work out how I can journal my way through this how I can talk my way through this how I can remind people that even though I'm eating it doesn't mean that I don't care it doesn't mean that I'm not interested in what's happened um as well and I think I think for me, definitely in my recovery, it has been like every day, just putting one step in front of another, like keeping pushing on, having those moments where, yes, people might call me out and stuff, but I'm also able to now call myself out on things and be like, I haven't challenged myself enough recently. I've not been pushing myself in this respects. Right. 
and you know like earlier again we were talking about some of the systemic issues which exist you know around people getting help for their eating disorder so do you want to like throw a little bit of light you know on what are the challenges today that you know you see the system is facing and what are the barriers that people seeking help for their eating disorders are facing yeah so main barriers are the weight issues so bmi factors um again the stereotypical images that it's a white teenage girl's illness which often can affect whether men feel able to reach out for support. Um, over the last four years, we've seen a five-fold increase in males aged 35 to 44 experiencing eating disorders, but because of the stigma, because of the stereotypes, a lot of them are unable to get treatment. Um, there are massive funding issues when it comes to mental health services more broadly, but particularly with eating disorders. We know that in a lot of areas, they're not actually funding kind of eating disorder services outside of the kind of likes of anorexia, of bulimia, of binge eating disorder, um, which then again adds that barrier and that complication to a person getting a support. Um, in the UK, we know that there are only 455 inpatient beds for adults who have eating disorders which as seeing as 16% of the adult population at some point will have an eating disorder, it's nowhere near enough for that support. Um, so I think, yeah, I think there's, there are a huge number of barriers. I think also like another barrier probably is that we live in a society where we probably complement weight loss, we complement a kind of obsessive exercise. So if someone's got an exercise addiction or someone's got orthorexia and they go to their GP, the GP might say that what they're doing is totally fine and totally normal and to just keep doing what they're doing. Um, and I think because of that normalization across the board of eating disorder culture, it creates this huge barrier to any sort of access to treatment for individuals. Um, and then I think a final barrier is probably within that person themselves. We know that there is so much shame and so much guilt around eating disorders across different cultures, particularly as well. And I think having those cultural barriers where there is that added shame and guilt and stigma, again, it stops people reaching out for support and stops them reaching out for treatment. I think, you know, as you said, um, we do live in a culture where, you know, like a lot of our conversations, even in social settings, seem to center around like physical appearances or weight loss or food or just weight gain and body image in general. And sometimes, as you said, we don't, we, right, we don't realize that what we might be complimenting or talking about could be someone dealing with an eating disorder. So how do you think, you know, like we could instead shift those narratives and not focus so much on food, like, you know, or what could be something more helpful that we could tell someone who's going through an eating disorder? Yeah, I think I think firstly, as general as a general rule of thumb, we need to stop commenting on what people look like. And I think we need to call ourselves up, out on that if we're commenting on what people look like or if we're even having those thoughts that come immediately to mind when we're walking down the street or we're going into a supermarket. Um, I think when you're supporting with an eating disorder, you have to move away from that focus on weight and really understand what's going on for them in that moment, reassuring them, reminding them that you know that things haven't totally clicked, even if they're eating, even if they're changing their weight. Um, and having those reminders is, is really key. It sounds like such a basic thing to do, but it will help that person to feel more heard and also really, really understood in that moment. Um, I think things that also helped me kind of more practically um, 
was unless on the kind of things to say but a practical one is having those distractions in place so when you're sitting down at a meal time and you've had an, you've got an eating disorder you might be finding that meal time can totally consuming your mind might be an overdrive with that obsessive thinking going on um so actually having someone present who can bring you back into the moment is really really helpful and then also having that space for distraction afterwards whether that's sitting down and playing a board game whether that's watching a movie whether that's washing up together going for a walk something like that just creating that distraction in that environment again afterwards um and i think a big thing for me throughout my journey has always been having a space where i can create those happy memories so i think so often when someone has an eating disorder we fixate on the fact they've got an eating disorder and it becomes their identity it becomes who they are but actually there's so much more than that and if you can help that person to come out of their eating disorder and you see there's so much more to life actually it's those sort of things that gradually will help that individual to realize that there is more to life than this and there is other stuff going on um, as well so for me in my own recovery it was like always about booking fun things to do having space with my friends and when I was doing fun activities making sure they didn't always happen around meal times or always in restaurants and if they did then having maybe some element of actually this is where we're going this is what we might have as well depending on where that person is in their own recovery journey right so I think you know you've shared a lot of tips and a lot of things that work a lot of things which didn't work and I know more recently looking at the larger ecosystem around you know things which are happening in the UK and around the world, one of the things that's been like, there has been an increase in eating disorders during the lockdowns. And we're seeing sort of spikes even through unlocks. What do you think is really contributing to that happening? Um, yeah, so we have seen a big increase this year, last, last year. Um, and whilst I wouldn't want to ever kind of just blame COVID or the lockdowns for that, I think it definitely has had a role to play. We've, as a nation, been kind of, yeah, there's just been this huge amount of fear, a huge amount of isolation, uncertainty. And those are all things that eating disorders really, really thrive off. Telling a person to fixate on food or calories or numbers. And by fixating on those things, it tells you that you're going to feel better. And the reality is you get that short-term release and then you keep going back to it. Um, so I think a lot of that hasn't helped. I think also over the last year with regards to things like social media, um, whilst again, we cannot blame social media for everything because it has can be really positive. And I know we kind of touched on that earlier. But we have seen a lot of these kind of wellness influencers kind of popping up left, right and centre, offering kind of diet advice, offering fitness advice. And a lot of the time that advice is just really, really unscientific and also really, really unhealthy. Um, and I think this whole general kind of thing with the pandemic is we have seen just this fixation on food, on baking, on exercise, on people's bodies, on this huge level of judgment. Um, and I think it's, again, all of that stuff that whilst we cannot say, yes, this causes an eating disorder, it definitely has had a role to play in contributing to people's feelings of self-worth and not feeling good enough. Right. So I think, you know, another thing which also came up recently, I think in the UK specifically was around like having a calorie count on menus. And I think that was also something which I think even you called out, right, that this is going to be very detrimental to people who are struggling. So can you tell us a little bit, you know, for the audience who are not very familiar with that and the impact that it can have? Yeah, and I, I think I think a lot of the messaging out there at the moment from the government is, is really dangerous, actually, on a more broader scale. I think we're often told to eat less and move more, um, which is unscientific in itself. 
but it puts that kind of really, really dangerous, unhealthy narrative into people's heads. And a lot of the statistics and a lot of the research is showing that it's these types of messages, this push for calorie counting, this push for labeling everything it's it's just unhelpful and whether you've got an eating disorder or not it's all of these kind of messages that actually make everyone feel really really awful about themselves and make everyone start to question actually what is going on um so yeah i think it i think it's important actually that we find a way to bring and kind of nuance a lot of this messaging that is out there kind of from a public health perspective, from an eating disorder perspective, from a mental health perspective, because the only way that we can make sure that everyone's getting the right messaging and the right support around the messaging is by bringing it together and realizing that actually we need to work together unless we want to create this generation of people who are struggling with food in their bodies. And, and also a lot of the time and a lot of these messaging, it really does just sap the kind of fun out of, out of the food and out of kind of going out for dinner with your friends and I think again we often forget that like going out for dinner with your friends and doing social activities where there's food involved should be really really good like emotionally for us but a lot of the time because of this messaging it takes that emotion straight out of it and instead it creates this environment where there's fear there's judgment there's insecurities um, as well. Right. So, you know, what would be something that, you know, you'd say that, you know, you've learned now that, you know, you hoped you had known earlier? I think for me, it would have been realizing that firstly, it was okay to feel emotion. Um, and it was okay to like, yeah, it was okay to feel different things. That didn't make me weird or unusual, but it was just normal. Um, and I think then the second thing probably is realizing that actually I don't, the eating disorder whilst it makes me feel good enough, actually it doesn't really do that in the long run. Um, and I think it, it's really hard with eating disorders because they're not about, they're not about body image. And I've kind of stated that and I've said that a lot and I, I can't emphasize that enough, but so often the eating disorder plays into that narrative, not feeling good enough, not being lovable. Um, and because of that, often then it kind of gets a little bit complicated, a little bit messy in certain situations. And so for me, I think if I'd felt good enough, if I'd realized that the eating disorder was offering that false sense of security, but wasn't actually achieving anything, I think that probably would have also helped me to get to a space much quicker where I was able to really understand it as well. I think, I think for people with eating disorders, we need to start to realize that the eating disorder behaviors are serving a purpose in that moment. And it could be a purpose from numbing emotions to feeling good enough to getting rid of some of that fear around our future, whatever it might be. But actually, if we can just sit with that fear, that uncertainty, and hold on to the fact that actually on the other side of this, this could be and will be amazing, actually that's what we need to be doing. So, and then in those moments when you feel triggered, when you feel stressed or anxious or upset about something, can you feel yourself going back to that behavior? You can then question yourself, actually, what do I need in this moment? What do I need? in this moment to give me that sense of reassurance instead of going back to that behavior and numbing it. Right. And, um, you know, for instance, you know, in terms of like, you know, now there's a lot of conversation happening around the new normal. So what would be, you know, something that you would like to see in the new normal, especially looking at it from a mental health and maybe an eating disorders perspective? Yeah, I think, I think a couple of things probably um I think the first thing would be not glorifying people being really busy all the time I think we live in a society where we 
feel the need to prove ourselves through how much work we're doing or what we look like and again then it's those things that play into that narrative of feeling good enough and having your self-worth and whatever it might be around that so I think kind of not glorifying those aspects um and then I think the other thing would be moving away from this fixation on bodies and on food and instead actually creating these environments where people feel really loved and really accepted as as humans we have this inbuilt desire for relationships like in the new normal I would love it if people just took more time to build these relationships and prioritize friendships and families and things like that which is something that we've all done over the last kind of year and a half so why are we stopping it now why don't we keep pushing for this as well so I'm gonna ask you, you know, my sort of last closing question to you. And if there's anything else you wanna add, please absolutely go ahead and you can share that. But what would be some advice that, you know, you would share for someone who's, you know, watching this, listening to this, who's having a hard time with their mental health right now? I would say, I guess firstly would get to have get you to think about who you've got in your life that you're accountable to, who you are surrounding yourself with. I think, again, so often we have the wrong people around us and it's sometimes about surrounding yourself with those people who cheerlead you, who build you up, who you can show that vulnerability to. I think I would always really, really recommend finding someone to talk to. And it doesn't mean telling everybody every single thing, but maybe identifying four or five things that you feel able to share. And I normally go in a quite matter of fact way or sending an email or something like that but actually just doing that will again kind of alleviate some of that some of that anxiety I think and give you again that space to maybe offload um and then I think as well like working out what you need to do every single week for your own well-being so I have a well-being jar um and in that I have things that I do every single week for my mental health I have things that I do every single day for my mental health um and it's things like journaling it's going to church it's getting dressed cleaning my teeth like various activities like that um, and I know that when my mental health starts to slide that all of those things just kind of get shoveled out the window and I stop doing them and so sometimes it is about actually thinking proactively what do I need to do every single week to prevent this escalating and um, what are the small things that I can do to help me feel better and I think just trying to be proactive in that sense and then checking it off as a checklist whilst yeah it feels a bit like a to-do list but actually for me that always really helps to yeah keep myself level um within that as well and I think a really big thing for me is the journaling um and it's something that I do recommend to a lot of people kind of creating that space where you've got a list of things you're thankful for creating a list of things that are on your mind um and maybe having like a time every single week to do that. I journal for 15 minutes every single day and that's probably not everyone's cup of tea, um, but having it for me is a really, is like a real grounding point to my day. So definitely recommend those sort of things as well. So thank you so much, you know, Hope, for sharing your thoughts, sharing your journey with us and of course joining us today. And I'm sure this is gonna, you know, really inspire people and make them feel less alone because I think one of the things, you know, as you very rightly said is with the mental health condition, especially with an eating disorder and all the stigma and all the shame that sort of unfortunately comes with it, people feel extremely isolated and as if you're not gonna be understood and I can't talk about this. So I think, you know, the work that you've been doing is extremely commendable, you know, just to get people to feel that there's someone out there who gets it, understands that I'm not the only one going through this. 
And um, lastly, for anyone who's watching this right now, and if you're having a hard time with your mental health, just know that, you know, you can reach out, there is help available, and you can talk to someone you trust, you can talk to a mental health professional, and things will get better. Because while suffering, sometimes another thing is we feel that, oh, you know, it's not going to get better, or it's always going to be this way, and it's really not. There is hope out there, there is help out there. So till next time, please stay well and stay healthy. Thank you.